a Podcast One production. G'day, it's Rusty here, all set for part two of my podcast with Larrikin, Safari and Dakar racer Bruce Garland. If you haven't already, head back to the library and give part one a listen. From his early years paddock bashing to the Ford Escort that is a work of art inside and out, plus his memories of Peter Brock. You will absolutely love it. Coming up, the pissometer or the pissophone. <laughs> Some Aussie ingenuity for when nature calls and you're competing. It's very funny. Plus the highs and lows of Dakar, which nearly left him in a wheelchair. And why a heart attack didn't stop him mashing that throttle pedal to the floor. We begin part two with the importance of those that sit beside him while he's competing, the co-driver. It's nearly like a marriage, you know. Uh, <laughs> so, except they, when something goes wrong, they don't bring it up all the time again. <laughs> but um, that's probably the only difference. But, yeah, look, we had a great uh, working relationship with Harry. and uh, I've got a, a mate of mine now comes with my escort, Stevie Green. Yeah, it, it's... Uh, you're in the car, they're putting their trust in you that you're not going to hurt them or kill them. Uh, you know, so there's a bit both ways. You're, you trust them that they're, they're doing the right. So there's a there's a mutual trust going on and respect and things like that. So, And you go through the good, take the good things and the bad things together and, uh, you know, there's no, you know, if, if like that, you know, if, there's no point. I've seen bikes yell at their navigators when the navigators made a mistake. Well, they're... They're human. They're going to make a mistake. Get over it. Move on. Do you want them to yell at you when you make a mistake, which is quite regular when you're driving? Mm. Every time you don't make the corner, you shouldn't don't yell at them. That's mm. no, it doesn't achieve anything. Just get, okay, well, where do we go wrong? Let's go back and do this, and then we'll move on together. You know what I mean? So it is quite a special relationship we have with your navigator. Any rally driver that has a good relationship with the navigator is successful, you know? The success you had here was, you know, important, I guess, for the for the step of going to international things, particularly like Dakar. What of of the achievements here from the safari and, and you know, the wins that you enjoyed there? Even, I think, in the record books, you've got the last round Australia trial win, haven't you? So, I mean, yeah. th- things like that are, are hugely satisfying. What's the most, in your mind, on the domestic scene? Uh, I grew up with the Round Australia, so winning the Round Australia was a was a. I tried to do it in '95, but it, we you got, got fourth that year. Didn't you? Yeah, we did. There was a there was a few things went against us with the. They kept sh- taking out all the rough stages. Otherwise, we probably would have won it. But the, we did win in '98. That was good. And I think the, the other yeah, all those things prepared to go to do the right thing. I went to Dakar, and I think the ideal. The, thing for looking at that whole period was when we went to Dakar I was the first driver that built that built their own car yeah every driver in front of me was either a paid factory driver or they'd paid a factory to build their car so the old team was one we all built together mm. and that was a that was probably the biggest achievement and we got a we won our class and that was a huge achievement. I think that's probably not underscored enough because a you were knocking on the door of the top ten, but you're you're effectively the first um, 
as you've just described there, kind of kind of privateer or, or, or amateur or non-factory team, if you like, class success. I mean, that was a big feat, wasn't it? It was a, it was a huge feat, and we probably we didn't because we did it, and the and the car ran. You know, there's minor things with the car, but it went. It was fairly solid, you know. Mm. It it uh, sure afterwards you can make things a bit better, but it came out of the box really well, and it drove well, and it just performed. The engine never missed a beat. I mean, it just it did everything right. We had a lot of dri- had a few driver setbacks, lost quite a few hours, and that's just learning the the, the terrain and things. But yeah, it's it's uh, it was it was a, it, we didn't realise how. Because we thought we could do it again, and we tried to, but things just keep going. Little things go wrong, you know. And that you can plan as much as you like and prepare, and but there's other things that affect it, you know. We probably need to tell a little bit of the preparation story in the sense of, I think you had probably about eight people working for you, maybe at the time. Do you had you had a little workshop in Northwest Sydney, maybe? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I've got a workshop in my. I've got five acres with a big shed on it. Yeah, we had times we had contractors in. We had. A, staff we had someone full-time doing logistics and paperwork and you know there was the first time we went we were building a car for a customer a a mate of mine Palais from Sweden and we had a sort of was a joint team you know there was by the time we went to Dakar there was I think uh, there was 16 people 18 people involved in the in the team you know so it's a huge um, logistics exercise it it starts a year out and Mm. and preparating then there's the things like the safari and the condo 750 and things like that they're just they're just test and pre-run they sort of hone the car mm. they're like the practice before you go to the olympics you know mm. they're all those sort of things so yeah we it was it was a big big exercise and took it was full time was every day seven days a week for a year it was like everything was focused on on doing that and um so so the the car and the equipment would be sea freight so that would obviously go mm. in a container at some point and you we're talking about the south american iteration here of of dakar you would go what just prior to christmas uh the first year we went um now <laughs> that's a bit sad you go to your wife yeah we're going to go to the dakar and we're going to leave on the 16th of august and we'll be back at the end of january so we won't be here for christmas we won't be here for new year's and we're going to spend every cent we've gotten more <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that took a bit of hostage negotiation skills to get that over the table but look it's yeah we went there early to climatize the first year but the car like the way i work at the dakar started we well, used to start that it was first of january so you have to work back. So you have to be there. There's all paperwork, documents, and the whole lot of rigmarole. You need there a week at least before that. Then you have to prepare, and and there's teams. There was stuff we were getting from Europe and trucks and things like that. And then we had to get things. It was a logistics headache. So we went early the first time to get acclimatised, and we had to do altitude testing because the engineers for the engine had never been above two half thousand metres and we were going to 5,000 so we had to go and test the car at 5,000. Everest base camp stuff mate it's, yeah, yeah yeah you can't hardly breathe up there it's it's pretty hard going you know but once you go up there once and you, you, the main thing is slow breaths lots of water and and don't run don't rush if you you just walk really slowly like mm. sheep on a hot day mm. you know and um, once you've been up there like we went up and did high altitude testing 
first time I went up there, I had a headache and I wasn't feeling so good. But then when we went back during the rally, because I'd already my body had got used to it the yep. first time, acclimatized. It did yeah. get oh, it's not, it knows what to do. It turned into a thing, and it wasn't so bad, you know. Um, but oh, yeah, I'm just trying to go back the the logistics. So the race so you look working back from the start of the race but then the the container because it had to go it's one of the longest shipping routes in the world it had to leave in the end of september so you had to have all the parts everything made everything ready to pack everything tools swags everything in that container because anything you forgot everything cost you a thousand dollars a box to yep. send so if you got it wrong you could do another ten thousand dollars in freight yeah. Just because you didn't get it in time, and sometimes we didn't, we didn't have the supply. We went to Dubai. We had overheating problems, so we had to take a whole lot of radiators and fans and water pumps and all sorts of stuff to upgrade the cars. You know, so mm. we had a lot of excess baggage, so we had to pay the customs official a bit of cash to get it through, <laughs> uh, which was their quickest way to get it through anyway. And um, yeah, look, it it. Um, it worked out right in the end, but yeah, it was a it's a big, big, big exercise. Yeah, the other thing with the Dakar was was two thousand nine, so it was the end of two thousand eight. The global financial thing, and you know, the entry fee for us was about one hundred and twenty thousand Australian dollars, and then the shipping went. Everything was in American dollars, and then the for some reason, we, Australian dollar just went to crap. You know, so we're. The budget that was getting was tight just went way out the window like it was a hundred thousands of dollars so we had to reassess everything and anyway we, we we had to cut back our spare we had to do a real shuffle to get the numbers to work and then when we sent it we didn't have any money to pay for it to come back <laughs> so we just hey, we're gonna do all right so yeah because it was like i think our shipping bills were like sixty thousand dollars or something for fees and war fees and stuff like that but then we because we did so well one of the cars went to um bangkok motor show and then down to malaysia so they isuzu helped us with all that in the end so it wasn't too bad it was was better than not too bad let's go to 2011 Mm. it's probably a tough memory in in many ways first of all to to dakar and the crash take us to that moment what happened and how you immediately felt when you landed? Yeah, well, we were going really well. This is the, um, we, were, we were running in the top 12, I think. We were up fighting in there. And, and then I, with that stage early on, I'd broke, we'd ripped the turret end off. We'd hit a big wash away and we'd got out and fixed it. And then we got a bit lost and then we were, we were come to the dunes and then we were mixing it with the trucks and the problem was with the trucks is you, you can't, they can't see you. So they'll come over the sand dune and land on top of you. So you, I came into the dunes and there's a truck on my right, I can still picture it now, there's a truck on my right, another one on the left and they're all heading, we're all heading to a waypoint up the top of the sand dunes and there's thousands of spectators up there and there's cars bogged everywhere and motorbikes bogged and in amongst this there's other motorbikes coming in and quads so they're all verging on this GPS point up in the top of this dune and I was running on top of a ridge and I was looking at the truck next near me because I was about to turn and come across in front of it and I took my eyes off the road and that thing we were talking about before just happens in a 
fraction of a second and it looked dead flat to me and I looked I looked at the truck I felt the car bogging so I automatically just gassed it and then I looked up and the the it went into a ravine about a, a width of a car down just about. dropped it dropped probably oh maybe two stories or something sure. and then straight back up again so as, as, as so I've gone over with the throttle on and then I've gone shit we're going to get stuck when it lands if I don't keep the throttle on we we're going to get bogged down here and that was probably the worst decision I made because as it hit it drove my throttle in more and then the car hit really hard on the nose and slammed down that hard it, it, it I didn't know at the time but it um it actually broke my back a compression breakage and it, we launched back out of the ravine and um and either pain was incredible it just was like a lightning electric shock went right up my body and out to my hands and we both got out of the we stopped and got out of the car I was just screaming in the pain and then we carried um voltaren and some panadol so we took took some of them how, after, yeah, how many cars did you have to go on the stage i still another 30 through yeah. the sand dunes so, but the problem, the impact was that hard, it broke the engine mount bracket off the side of the block. So it broke a huge chunk out of the, it was a massive hit. I don't know how many Gs it was. Um, the boys calculator was, was horrendous. I mean, to break what it broke, to break the engine, mm. it was a fair hit. But then we couldn't drive it up the dune because the engine was jumping around. So I was having, a, I was in so much pain. Anyway, some locals helped us and, um, we jacked the engine up and put the. We, I said, "Have you got any four B two wood?" And they don't even know what I'm talking about. There's no tree for about a thousand kilometres, so I need a bit of wood under the sump. So I walked around the car, and we had the snatch strap. Yeah. So I got coiled up, and I went, "Oh, that'll do." So we jacked her up, put the engine on the on that on the sump sump guard, and then we zip tied the the uh, engine into the onto the chassis. Mm-hmm. And we it was good enough to drive out, and I drove it out, and it was. Oh, I, Jeez, and I hit it a couple of more times, just little hits, but not bad as that. And it was I was in a lot of pain, so I thought, I thought oh, maybe I've hurt my kidneys or some bloody thing. I wasn't thinking that it was going to be my back. So we got in, had a shower, took some more Panadol, and I'm lying there, and the pain just was getting worse. So I went down to the medical thing, and the boys are fixing that. They got to re-engineer the whole. They're going to mount the engine. So you're with the Dakar Medicos at this stage? Then I went down to the Medicos. So the yeah. boys are left with the car. I said, I'm going down to the doctor to see if there's something wrong with my kidneys. Because I said, we've seen you hit the thing ground hard before and you're normally, you're not in that much pain. There's something wrong. So they told me, I go down there. They give me an x-ray and they said, oh, you, next thing I know, I'm in an ambulance going to the hospital. And then they're all Spanish. I didn't even know. I had my phone. I had nothing. Mm. So I rang home. My wife was getting her hair done down the road. I says, I don't know where I am. I've hurt my back. And I don't know where. I can't contact the boys because so you have to tell them. Because I went and had a um, CT scan and then they they took me in a chill wheel. They took me in a in the am sitting up. And then as soon as they did the x-ray, they strapped me on the scurney. And then I didn't get, I was, they wheeled me into a hospital with all the other wounded Mm. For about four or five days, we're in there. But um, the, yeah, the, the 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 extension to this is that the the fracture was big, and it was very close to your spinal cord. Is that right? How how close did that go oh, to a life changing moment? They said if I'd hit it again, I would be paralysed. It was 
was pretty close. But they said, "What? Well, look, once it." And I went back and saw this um, specialist back here, and he, he said, three months it'll be eighty percent." So I'm still calculating. I'm going to do another rally. You know? Eighty <laughs> percent in three months. So I want to do another one in five months. See, yeah. um, so we were going to do a rally in. Um, I sent the car to to, to the UAE, and it was r- just on three months. I said, oh, "I'll be right for that." But it, it, and then I had heart. Then I had the heart heart attack from I was sitting two 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 months waiting for it to heal. Yeah. Didn't do anything, and then I had a heart attack. Uh, stress help didn't help and then um, I had to get open up surgery so it all happened in once and and um, it was is, pretty life-changing that was is the theory that the, that the heart was also affected by by the crash I know that you had the heart attack later on and required you know some pretty significant work from a bypass point of view didn't you didn't you tell them to take some <laughs> some vein or artery from your your uh, not not your uh, right leg yeah, you needed that yeah, from driving. yeah yeah they said uh, <laughs> I said, which I said, we're going to take an artery from your left, from your legs, and both your arms. Um, I said, we'll take it on the left leg because if it shits itself, I can still drive. And I said, don't dig around. I want dash twelve. Give me the big hoses. I don't want ones that block up easy. So he said, what's a dash twelve? I said, well, when you're plumbing a, a race car, that's a dirty big hose you use for the dry sump. So, <laughs> so anyway, I had a really good surgeon down in Monash Heart Hospital down in Melbourne. That's where I was at the time. And they said, oh, it looks like you haven't damaged the muscle. Because that's the problem when you get a blockage that stops the blood flow and the muscle dies and you can't, it can't, doesn't recover. Your mm. muscle in your heart, once it kills the muscle, it's damaged forever. So they said, look, it looks like you're lucky it didn't damage it. So then I had to go through the whole rehab process, which was very long and painful because mm. I'd already had the broken back and broken ribs. So they were sore. Then they cut my chest open, spread it all apart to do the surgery. Mm. And then they banged it all back together and, oh, man, it hurt. And then I had an endone and all those other mind-altering drugs, <laughs> painkillers, and I, I was in bed one night. I was just rocking. I'm going. I think I'm on the edge of insanity. I was like, like I was on the cliff. I'm not taking that shit anymore. Oh, so uh, yeah. Um, did, that, did that bring you to a crossroads? Was that, you know, a prompter for? maybe a life discussion with your your wife and family, or did the doctor say to you, "Hey, mate, you're going to have to scale this back a bit"? What what? impact did that have uh, it had a bit of everything uh, the, you know my wife was so good she did um she got me up when i didn't feel like getting up and do exercise the main thing with any of those operations is get up and get moving as quick as you can hmm. and and when we started off with small walks and then we went bigger and then sometimes i couldn't make it home and she'd go and get the car and you know and then she and it worked and, it, and so that it, it reassessed a lot of things after that hmm. you know i i just I, I I was a bit high strung, you know, to drive that project you need you need to be quite passionate and and and, and, and it's you gotta to push to get things the way you need know that they need to be done, you know. Yeah. And I just thought, you know, I'm not gonna I'm just gonna I get angry with somebody, someone does something wrong and just don't worry about it. You know, mm. at the end of the day, start another day. Don't tr- go back over what went wrong last week and someone mm. did something wrong. It's not worth it, mm. you know. Um, so I did that and then I just, then we re- I reassessed. I, I really wanted to go back one more time and I got a, eventually I got a better and then I got a personal trainer and he helped me get back 
I went to physio and, and um, got back strong enough to go back again. We went back, but we had car issues the next time, you know. Mm. Um, and then we didn't finish, unfortunately. Unlike other motorsport events, petrol usage at the Dakar is not regulated. However, receiving petrol from fans or locals is not allowed, though if a rider is forced to do this, it normally means he's having a seriously bad day, and protests are rarely made in this case. Bruce, to get there, to get to Dakar, I mean, for a Toby Price to win it on two wheels is a, is a massive thing, and I don't mm, know massive. that... I don't know that everyone... Uh, in our world, in motorsport, I think people appreciate it and understand it, but in the broader community, maybe people don't. But even to do what you did, to, to you know, uh, to be that, that that first non-factory driver home that time, to be on the edge of the top ten with the minimal budget relative to others, I mean, they're big, they're big things. Yeah, they were big achievements. I, I mean, when you're in the mix of doing it at the time, you don't realise that. You know, sometimes and you got, and you got a license in um, uh, was it an A grade endorsement or something? What, what was a, the A seating? Well, we got A seating back in the nineties. Mm. Well, that carried on. I got a, I did get a uh, the, the top seating. So, and then when you start the Dakar, you stop in the you start start in the top twenty, yeah. and it gives you a if you have something wrong with your car, you always the worst you're going to start is. 20. 20 yeah. So uh, we had that, but we'd also got a seating, which was the top, the best of the mm. that you could do. There was only forty or fifty people in the world had a a seating at that time. This was rally seating, so because yeah. um, we'd won the world championship round that was in the Australian Safari, you know, yeah. and that kept because I kept going and doing international events. I kept, it kept it keeps going. If you don't do it stuff, it doesn't it you lose it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so there, there was some big achievements on the way, for sure. Uh, didn't get all the way that I would have liked to have gone, you know. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you, if you know you've done the best you can with what you've got and, and, and done it well with it and, and everyone else has, you know, haven't made any, you've made lots of friends on the way, you've done a good job. And and you talked about Toby Price. I mean, that was a legend. He, you know, was so good. I was so happy for him too. Mm. To, to win that, you know, because I knew how hard it was. And, and you know, he was the first Australian to win that. Yeah. He was the first non-European to win. They didn't want him to win. They kept trying to change shortened stages when he was leading by miles. You know, they did. They wanted a European to win. So to him to do it and then do it twice is it's just legend stuff, you know. So, yeah. <clears throat> you have been very clever on the engineering side to finding solutions for some of the things that this style of competition presents. We more or less have patented a thing called the pisser <laughs> Tell people, because you're, you're at the wheel for long periods of time and you can't afford a nature stop, mate, can you, in that moment? No, no, especially if you're chasing someone or someone's chasing you and then you, you might have to do a nature stop and then you, you'll, you'll drop behind them and have to follow them for three or 400 kilometres, you know. So the only time you stop, for personal reasons is to or you don't stop if you vo- I've never vomited but mm. the co-drivers have done over the time but you don't stop for any of that stuff it's only if you've got to have a crap you know yeah. but uh, yeah so what happened was it was a long process to <laughs> we've got enough time T- testing and development <laughs> there's a lot of R&D gone into it I tell you what there's a lot of failures when you do R&D <laughs> so the first so it happened look we're three 
so three or four hundred k stage you might be in the car for oh, i've been in the car in dubai for a 300 k stage for six eight hours you've got to hydrate in that moment don't you've you? got to in it's mm. 40 plus degrees outside and you know there's not in the, inside the cabin's like a sauna literally hotter than a sauna so you've got to keep if you're not going to the toilet you you're you're dehydrating and the problem is when you get a full bladder it just you know, it's a rough road and you've still got 100 kilometers to go and you're yeah. absolutely busting it's you can't concentrate properly so you need to some way so we had a few so the first one i did was i used a, like they have in the in the hospital where they you put the strap on your leg and you you put what's called i didn't know what it was called then it was called a urijome it's like a condom right, glues onto your old fella and, uh, <laughs> and it's got a tube on it and it goes down fills a bag so that's fine when you want to do but you can be doing multiple having to go to the, do number one so the bag fills up but because you're doing a literally a thousand clutch changes when the bag's full it's got a lot of weight in it and it's bouncing up and down on the rough road and your clutch is going in and out and the, what happens is the bag wraps around your calf and oh, ties no. itself in a knot. No, no. <laughs> so then, by that, you fill the bag up, and then it's got a knot in it, and then you th- oh, I've got to go again, and it, it's absolutely painful. And you can't, what do you do? You, you got to <laughs> try and rip the bag off, and you got the suit on. It's just, it just didn't work. So then we tried, I tried all different things like men's nappies, and then we tried, I just, I said, oh, bucket, I just freaking drilled a hole in the seat and then that hits the hot floor and stinks like a bastard so there's a few failures and then we um <clears throat> we get to the we had a that's my palais my swedish mate and i'm telling him we're trying to solve the problem before we go to dakar because we just can't get a solution there's a, other off-roaders in america they have the tube goes down and it's near their left foot foot and they wee on the floor there's a hole in the floor but they're automatic so their left foot doesn't move we can't do that because we're going up now and then the and then all the floors are wet under your pedals and it's shit out. You know, well, it's, it's not <laughs> pun, but anyway, it doesn't work. So anyway, the Swedish says, oh, I have talked to the helicopter pilots from the military. He, he's come, he's got the whole thing. He says, you've got to shave your jets, crackers and your alpha and you glue this thing on <laughs> and the tube goes down and you put the bag on the leg. I said, it doesn't work. Yeah, but they're in the helicopter for, they don't get out for days in the military, you know. I mean, and they <laughs> swear in the bag. I said, mate, that doesn't work. Anyway, first day he used it, 300k stage in, we, he pulls in behind us and he comes screaming out of the driver's seat, running to the closest tree in agony because it's wrapped around his leg tied in a knot, pulls the hose off, it's like a fire hydrant going everywhere <laughs> and all over him and, and I go, I told you that wasn't going to work. Anyway, so he, they come up with an idea and um, so what happens is you get, you because every third or fourth drink you should drink a uh, a hydration drink. So yeah. the hydration drink, like a Gatorade's got a big hole because you can't wee into a normal bottle. The hole's too small, especially when it's bouncing. So the Gatorade bottle's the nice size. So so they've so they what you do is you you're gonna do so in the Dakar there's like you're going through villages and stuff. So you've got to slow down to fifty. So when you'd come to that you'd get ready, loosen all your seatbelts, under your seatbelt, navigate it, hang on to the steering wheel, he'd finish drinking the Gatorade bottle and then you'd you'd throw a wee in the Gatorade bottle and fill it up, put the lid back on and you'd hoik it out the window. <laughs> so when you're in the Atacama Desert and you come across a Gatorade bottle, it's do, orange. Do not touch it. Don't drink it. <laughs> anyway, so that works all right, but the problem is the villages can be hundreds of kilometres 
part where you have to slow down. So we come up with a better, so I go on, there's got to be a better solution. So we came home, I rang my brother, I said, mate, he's a doctor, he's in action emergency up in Queensland. I said, it's got to be a word of whack. What about a, what that catheter thing? Can we shove one of them things in there? And he said, no, 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 that, that, you can't do that, and especially out in that bush for a week. And he said, you've got to go to the, go and see what the, the disabled people have got, different hardware and the Uridome. See, you need a Uridome. So I knew what I had to look for, so I Googled it. Anyway, I go down to the disabled centre in Silverwater, New South Wales, lovely people, and I go into the girl and I ask the girl, I said, can I, I want to do this, I'm doing the racing and I need to, blah, blah, and the bag doesn't work and I, I don't know, what options have I got, bigger bags or whatever. And she said, uh, oh, that's unusual, I've never, we've never had that kind of thing. <laughs> he said, but what you need to do for the Uridome is you need, there's this, Gauge. It's a square sided thing. A template. A template. <laughs> there's a half circles in it. And that's like 25 mil, 30, 32. And there's one that's about 50 mil. He says, you've got to go into the toilet and pull this, the old fella out and measure it with this no-go gauge. Tell me what size it is so I can get you the right one. And I looked at her and the one that was 50 mil, I said, who has the dick that big on the slack? And I went, it was absolutely, it was like a donkey. It was insane. Anyway. <laughs> so after I got the extra large one, <laughs> no, I got it. So then I had to go and look at all the, they had this wall of things, they had amazing products to help people to look after loved ones at home. That of course. Are, thing, right? yeah. So I've gone, okay, so, I, so the, the technology was, okay, so I got the Uri Dome, I got a hose. I didn't know how to get it out. I watched in the V8 supercars and I see the boys walking down the pits and they got two tubes hanging out the side of their pocket. Yep. For their dry suit, I can't shit because you can't cut the driving suit to bring it out the front. From a safety point of view, so no, it's yeah. not it's not legal. So they, they cut the hole in the pocket. So, so that's a good idea. So I've gone, I'll do that. So then I go down and I've I bought all these packets of different things because the problem is then you've got to click it into the floor. Now you can do, use a proper connection, but then when if you get out and forget to disconnect <laughs> and the things glued to your old fella. You go out the door, your old fella goes back in the cab, you know. <laughs> so there's all that stuff, a lot of R&D in that whole thing. So then I went and got all these bits and they've, so I get all these different pieces and I cut the bit off that and use that fitting and end up with a nice tapered thing. So it goes into a, like a plastic reciprocal. <laughs> and then if you forget, it just comes out with it. So that took maybe a seven year process <laughs> to get it perfect. But it's still not so. It doesn't always work. But it's, it works ninety percent of the time. Yeah, there are there are stories at, at Bathurst of uh, well-known drivers when, in double stints having to, you know, uh, we in the seat on on the run. So uh, look for that in the in the future. The patented. Uh, Pissophones. So oh, I have offered it to some of the. I did take Lounsey. I told Lounsey about it, but he wasn't having the issue. But some of the other boys were. I said, "Well, I got the fix for it, mate. You don't be busting you. You won't be busting yourself. You can you can go as many times as you want. And then and if you've got it through the floor, you cut the end of it. It's got like a venturi effect. It cools the diff down when it as it's going out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, beautiful, beautiful. Let's let's finish with a couple of fun things. Firstly, yeah. firstly, the achievement in motorsport that you are most proud of in, in the career that stemmed from what are you now? You're in your sixties and you started in your late teens, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, sixty two now. Uh, I think the one you're talking about the Daco, having my own team. I did drive for a Japanese team in nineteen ninety eight and we had a lot of the stuff was all there, but it, it just didn't 
I just didn't do a few things right and I knew it wasn't right beforehand but I got the drive but I swore I'd never had mental health issues for years after that I was so disappointed I said I'm never going back unless I'm taking my own team mm. and build my own car mm. and we did that and we did it we did that we took two cars there they both finished we finished at one hour class against and we were the first car behind all the factory cars mm. I think that's probably and most nearly 90% of the motorsport equipment in the car was made in Australia. Yeah. The wheels, the gearbox, the brakes, the so much many components were mm. built here in Australia, and that that was a was a, a very proud of that achievement. You're talking about it like it's a it's a zenith moment. Just share with people what that car was like. Am I right in saying it produced about 700 newton metres or something? It, it had it had huge torque. It had 700 newton metres at two grand. So it only revved to about 4,300. But if it was in two-wheel drive at 160, 170 k on the dirt, it had wheel spin. Yeah, it had that much torque. Uh, and it didn't use too much fuel. You know, like mm. we were putting 200 litres in and the V8, V6 Nissans were putting 500 litres to do the same stage. You Crazy. Know. But, yeah, look at it. It was just, it was just so strong, that Isuzu engines there. They, they are, they do make sensational engines and mm. stuff. Has there been, along the way, a, 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 a thing in motorsport that you haven't done that you would like to have had a crack at? I would like to have a do a bit race at Bathurst. Would you? A, a race. So yeah. now I've got the car like that. I was talking to the boys. Seems like maybe like a Bathurst six hour or no, something. No, like. no, no, yeah. no. Um, I can take my Escort now and run it in sports and in that mix. Fantastic. There's a mix like street sedans, yeah. but you've got to be invited. So I wouldn't go, I'd, I'd want to go and do a program of of doing a few uh, races because I haven't done a great deal of tarmac. Okay. And there'd be, I just wouldn't go up there straight away. It's it's too you got to respect that place. So I, I wouldn't mind doing a few events, and we might now they got get the car sorted, put it in some tarmac spec, and then do some races here, and then maybe down the track if I'm still alive, have a crack at maybe doing a couple of laps up there. Awesome. You talked about a couple of the cars that you've acquired back for the workshop. One thing you did do in relatively recent times with unique cars was track down a Leyland P76. Oh yeah. You found it in Alice Springs, is that right? Yeah, 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 that was a good car. I, I like the P76. They got a bit of a flogging when they were new, but engineering-wise, they're way ahead of their time mm. from their base model compared to a Holden. If you drive an early 70s Valiant Ford or a Holden and then buy, drive the P76 yep. with good tyres on it, you know, so they've all got good tyres, it's way ahead. The, the V8, it would, six cylinders are a waste of time, but the V8 P76 was a lot better car than people think that it is. This thing, I think, had been lying around since the, the 80s. It's, it was uh, the 4.4 that you talked about, the V8, yeah. four-speed, yeah. and you brought it back to life, basically. It was yeah. bur burnt orange colour, is that Burnt right? orange. It was, there was, wasn't too many burnt oranges left. There wasn't too many sold, and there wasn't too many left, but it was a burnt orange V8 manual, and it'd been in this bloke's was he was a bit of a hoarder collector, and it'd been in the same spot for like thirty five years or something, and it had a Mustang next to it. They had to pull the sheds down. He died, and then they had to sell all of the stuff off, and he had his old car collection around that. It took him 
I think two months to get all the cars out because I had to pull sheds down to get them out and then pull another shed down to get the next lot out. They were jammed in that tight and they were looking all the time for a big pot of gold and under the P76 was a huge bag of coins but they're only half pennies. <laughs> uh, yeah, but that was a nice car. That's a, It was a pretty car. But, yeah, it's just bring it back. It only had 16,000 miles on it. It was, it was quite amazing. But, yeah. They're good, the P76. Is there a Grail car that you don't have that you would like tucked away in the shed? Oh, geez, that's a good question. I do have my eye on a Isuzu Billet GTR Ooh. in Japan, but it's got no engine gearbox, and I was thinking of getting it back here and then shoving a Honda engine in it. <laughs> Does your wife know you're trawling eBay or whatever you're doing? <laughs> no, it's not. It's actually in an old Isuzu race workshop. They've got it out the back. Fantastic. So anyway, it's hard to get it back in at the moment. So. Life life at the moment means you're on the road a bit. It's fantastic. We'll wrap this up with, with you doing some rally sprint action, which mm-hmm. I think is tremendous. But you are doing a bit of stuff around trucks, and windmills, is that right? Yeah, yeah. I, I I go out and buy, I find old trucks, real old, like 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, about up 70s, about the latest one, early 70s, and windmills. And I, and I clean them and get them going if I can, and then I send them on their way. I find somebody that wants them, that's going to get them going again. And I've got a couple of rat rods projects. You always got to have heaps of projects going. But I like saving them from the scrappers, and then I'll find parts, some bloke will be looking for a, a cab for a 1937 Chev or whatever, and I find one. So it's like good. Like it's uh, it meets a lots of interesting different different interesting people. people. Yeah, yeah. And in the coming months, you are a legend, mate. You may not like the the term, but you're going to go and get to hang with a number of legends at a very special meeting, aren't you? That yeah. gets back to the rally roots. Yes, look, it's going to be a cool. It's down at the border rally sprint down a uh, ranger, sorry, rally sprint down in. Um, near Wilpina Pound at Rawsley Station that's in June so there's I think now they're supposed to get every ARC rally champion that's alive it's supposed to be coming and then there's Bondi's going to be there driving his old round Australia Cortina and and we didn't even touch on round Australia stories Christ but um yeah, that's, it's going to be a big weekend. There's going to be lots of lying and drinking and uh, <laughs> <laughs> the fast, older I get, the faster I was, stories. But, yeah, that'll be a huge weekend. So if you, if you want if you want to do a bit of camping and see a bit of the lovely Australian outback, yeah. put it in your diary because it's the weekend before Fink and then we're up to watch the crazies at Fink. Fink, which is an awesome event. Let's finish with that. You, you've brought it up round Australia. Is there is there a yarn that springs to mind from having tackled that because it, it's in motorsport it, it's held in such folklore isn't it yeah it's just uh the first one we did was i did with bondi in 79 and we should have won it but we just didn't the preparation was late and we didn't have enough money and that's that's pretty normal but if we'd have just done a little bit of testing beforehand we'd have beat the commodores you know <laughs> and then so when i won in 98 i said to bondi Thanks for showing us how not to do it. <laughs> uh, no, and I said, look, you, I learnt from that, and that's where we—that's why we're so successful. Because yeah. you learn from your mistakes, and we we did that. So you must have seen some incredible parts of the country. Ah, oh, at speed, yeah. Now, yeah. I, now my wife, I go. Oh, I want to go over to the Kimberleys. Yeah, I did that in about four <laughs> hours. 
It's like a four-day trip. I want to go back and see it now slowly. So I'm taking my wife back to where I used to race and through in, in literally minutes and hours, and then we're going to spend days going and looking at the gorges and things. Like that. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Well done, mate. Congrats on everything that you've you've achieved. I love the fact that you're still having a pedal in some stuff like this in, in rally sprints, and you're, it seems, as infectious as ever. Don't ever change that no 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 oh, that'd be the ideal way to to die either on the job or in a rally car you know <laughs> you said to me over lunch before we got going here let's not let, we don't want that to happen to you but what did you describe it as like like being at the end of a of a ruler or something? oh no no life's a 12 inch ruler we're in the last one inch don't waste it because you don't know whether you're going to get an eighth or the whole inch <laughs> so in other words go out and buy that car if you want to rest go, go and that's it go and buy it you want your last check to bounce and my mate said you want the whole checkbook to bounce <laughs> awesome mate thank you very very thank much thank you rusty awesome. good on you mate rusty's garage is written and presented by me greg rust series producer and editor is alex mitchell Audio production by Darcy Thompson. 